Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Albert I, King of the Belgians In 1914, a new German minister, Walter von Bilo Zaleska, took up residence in Brussels, Belgium. He was a career diplomat, and on his desk sat a silver ashtray that had been pierced by a bullet. When asked about the tray, he would laugh, I am a bird of ill omen. When I was stationed in Turkey, they had a revolution. When I was in China, it was the boxers. One of their shots through the window made that bullet hole. But now I am resting. Nothing ever happens in Belgium. Soon, however, a series of critical events would take place in Belgium. On July 29, 1914, one day after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, a special courier arrived at the German minister's residence in Brussels. The courier deposited a sealed envelope in Bilo's safe. The minister was told not to open the envelope unless instructed to do so by Berlin. Tensions were high across Europe, and these secret instructions were consistent with the diplomacy being pursued by all nations in this latest European crisis. Days later, Bilo received a visit from Belgium's Undersecretary of Foreign Affairs. Europe was on the verge of war, and the Undersecretary wanted confirmation that Germany had no intention of invading Belgium to attack France. Belgian concern was not unwarranted. Since the days of Julius Caesar, Belgium had been a thoroughfare and a battleground for foreign armies. Bilo listened to the undersecretary's fears that Germany was mobilizing. Without hesitation, he assured the man that Belgium had nothing to fear from Germany. On August 2nd, Bilo was visited by Belgium's foreign minister, who expressed concerns over Germany's invasion of Luxembourg, Belgium's neighbor to the south. Once again, Bilo assured the Belgians, explaining, your neighbor's roof may catch fire, but your house will be safe. This satisfied many, but not King Albert I of Belgium. For years he had received intelligence reports of German tourists mapping out the terrain and transportation networks in Belgium while ostensibly on holiday. The French had also experienced this type of covert action and had complained about German peddlers who crisscrossed France's eastern border but never sold anything and always had plenty of cash to spend. Clearly, if war came, Germany would start an invasion with a serious advantage. This advantage was of enormous concern to Albert, but bound by Belgium's neutrality, he could take no overt action at this point. In the coming drama, however, he would play a major role and would prove himself one of the more successful wartime leaders. Albert had not been raised to be King of Belgium. He was born into the House of Coburg, one of the most cosmopolitan, European-oriented houses of German princelings. His father was Count of Flanders, and his mother was of the House of Hohenzollern. He was the fifth of five children, and at birth few would have anticipated that he would one day become king. He was the nephew of Belgium's King Leopold II. Following the death of Leopold's own son, and then the deaths of Albert's older brother and father, Albert became heir to the Belgian throne. King Leopold derisively called him a sealed envelope, and in many ways this was an accurate description. Albert was an unknown and hardly a typical royal. 
In attempting to draw his character, author Barbara Tuckman described him as having the intelligence and energy of two of his contemporaries, Theodore Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, although in no way did he share their extrovert natures. He loved the outdoors and physical exertion, but he also had a passion for learning, devouring books on almost any topic. In 1900, he married Elizabeth of Bavaria, princess of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, and member of the House of Wittelsbach. The couple shared a dislike of pomp and ceremony, and were criticized by some for their seeming bourgeois family life, so different from the glittering and often scandalous royal houses of Europe. As Tuckman points out, however, they were not bourgeois so much as bohemian royalty. The couple later liked to travel under aliases, eschewing royal treatment in favor of traveling without fanfare. Once in Geneva, Albert parked outside a shop to let his wife finish shopping. An American woman exited the shop and, mistaking him for a taxi driver, hopped into his car and asked him to drive her to her hotel. The King of the Belgians gamely drove her to her hotel, accepted her fare and tip, and then drove back to the store to find his confused wife waiting for him on the curb. The King showed his wife his earnings, and both shared a good laugh over the case of mistaken identity. This may have been an apocryphal story, but his early biographers believed that it was an accurate illustration of his character. As the storm clouds of war grew over Europe in 1913, Albert was one of the few to realize that war was definitely coming. He was courted by the Germans, but also threatened by them. At a court ball in Berlin in November 1913, the Kaiser pointed out Alexander von Kluck to him, explaining, that's the general who will lead the offensive to Paris. At the dinner that accompanied the ball, General Helmut von Moltke the Younger waxed on and on about Fuhrer Teutonicus and the destruction of France. Albert hoped, as did many other heads of state exposed to this same treatment, that the Kaiser was just being his same hysterical self. But it was hard to ignore the bellicosity of the Kaiser's military leadership. Germany seemed to be itching for a fight and desirous of drawing Belgium into its short list of allies. Neutrality, the Kaiser informed him, would be a mistake in this coming conflict. After this visit to Berlin, Albert began to have serious doubts about Belgian neutrality being respected during any war between France and Germany. Five years earlier, and in response to similar German threats and worries about Belgian neutrality, his predecessor, King Leopold II, had authorized the reorganization of the Belgian army in an attempt to both swell its ranks and provide more of a deterrent to invasion. In 1913, compulsory military service was also introduced, but remained unpopular with the people and with the Belgian government. Military expenditures were unpopular and considered unnecessary by most in light of the matter of Belgian neutrality. Many politicians and military leaders looked to the example of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. France and Prussia had both fielded massive armies in that war, but both sides had respected Belgian neutrality and none of the fighting had spilled over into Belgian territory. If this didn't play out in the same way in a future war, some Belgian military leaders advised cooperation with the Germans. For the moment, however, the principles of Belgian neutrality made it clear. No action could be taken until foreign soldiers, whether French, German, or of any other country, stepped onto Belgian soil. 
There could also be no joint planning with any potential allies in the event of an invasion, for Belgium would not be able to identify the enemy until the invasion actually started. Despite these restrictions, as Europe tilted towards war in the summer of 1914, Albert began to take what limited action was available to him. After receiving intelligence that Germany was mobilizing, on July 31st the order was given to mobilize the Belgian army. With the army preparing, it was time to wait for the invasion. Hoping to avoid war, Albert decided to write to Kaiser Wilhelm II asking for a guarantee of Belgian neutrality. The chance of this appeal being successful was highly unlikely. During his visit to Berlin in 1913, Albert had been personally warned by Kaiser Wilhelm that smaller countries like Belgium would be well advised to rally to Germany in the event of war. There would be little mercy for those who clung to neutrality and failed to aid Germany. Nevertheless, in a desperate attempt to avoid war, Albert began drafting his personal letter to the Kaiser. He enlisted the help of his German-born wife, Queen Elizabeth. While she translated the letter into German, the couple debated the meaning of every word in the letter. It was very important to get this right. The Kaiser's belated reply came on August 3rd. He reiterated the German demand that Belgium not resist the German invasion, promised his good intentions, and then placed the blame for any potential war on Albert, writing, The possibility of maintaining our former and present relations still lie in the hands of your majesty. Comply or resist. The decision was Albert's. At 8 a.m. on August 4th, German troops crossed into Belgium. Belgian forces put up token resistance before retreating. Now with evidence of an actual invasion, at noon Albert formally requested aid from Great Britain, a nation that had pledged to support Belgian neutrality. Then, donning a field uniform, he mounted a horse and rode to the Belgian Parliament. In a moment of perfect political and royal theater, he announced his intention to resist the German invasion and asked the members of Parliament, Gentlemen, are you unalterably decided to maintain intact the sacred gifts of our forefathers? The whole assembly was immediately on its feet, shouting as one, yes, yes, yes. This enthusiasm was shared by the citizens as well. Overnight, there was a complete turnaround in public opinion about the military, the military budget, and war. Cities around Belgium were soon festooned with flags, bunting, and patriotic posters. Belgium would resist Germany. At the German embassy in Brussels, German staffers looked down with pity at the sea of tricolor flags and other patriotic symbols of Belgium. Oh, the poor fools, cried one staffer. Why don't they get out of the way of the steamroller? We don't want to hurt them, but if they stand in our way, they will be ground into the dirt. Oh, the poor fools. With a standing army of 43,000 men and 115,000 reserves, no one expected the Belgians to be able to resist the 34 German divisions slated to pass through Belgium. But the letter Albert had sent to King George V was about to pay dividends. When King George received the letter from Albert explaining that Germany was demanding free passage through Belgium and that Belgium would resist, he passed it along to his government. In July, George V had also received a letter from French President Raymond Poincaré. Poincaré had asked the king for military assistance against the Germans. The matter had been raised in the cabinet, but there had been no agreement that Britain belonged in the war at this time. Albert's letter galvanized the cabinet, however. Upon reading the letter, British Prime Minister Asquith informed the king, I do believe, sir, that this will do the trick. 
England would not go to war to help France, but war to defend the neutrality of Belgium, that was possible. England would enter the war. Within hours, a motorcade carrying the king left Brussels bound for the east, and the fortresses of Liège. A ring of twelve forts armed with guns and mortars encircled the city of Liège. Each fort also boasted a small garrison of soldiers. It was in this heavily fortified zone that Albert hoped to stop the German invasion. The German army attacked on the evening of August 5th. Belgian defenders raked bullets through the German lines as they advanced towards the forts. German losses were crippling, and not a single German soldier made it anywhere near the fort. The next day, three German army corps attacked the forts. The Belgian defenders were outnumbered six to one. Once again, the Germans were driven back with heavy losses. By mid-August, the Germans brought up heavy artillery, including the aptly named Big Berthas. These heavy mortars pulverized the Belgian forts. Albert's tiny army was eventually forced back from Liège towards Antwerp. On August 20th, the Belgian army arrived at Antwerp, and the Germans occupied the capital city of Brussels. Four days later, Albert and his army sallied out of Antwerp in the first of three major sorties in 1914. Over the next week, they drove back towards Brussels, retaking some cities and pushing the Germans back. Throughout the heavy fighting, Albert was seen consistently at the front, planning with his generals alongside the roads, standing in the trenches with his troops, and even occasionally borrowing a rifle to exchange fire with the enemy. Against all odds, his tiny army was making important gains. Citizens in German-occupied Brussels saw long lines of weary German troops retreating eastward. Soon, however, this Belgian advance halted. With news that French and British forces were not coming directly to their aid, but were being forced back by the Germans towards Paris and the Marne, Albert and his troops retreated back to Antwerp by August 26th. From September 9th to September 13th, the Belgians again poured out from Antwerp. The seriousness of this Belgian threat forced the German army to leave two corps at Antwerp to deal with them, troops that would have been very valuable to the Germans at the First Battle of the Marne. At the end of September, the Belgians sallied out once again to wreak havoc on the German communication lines and to disrupt a German assault on Antwerp. When German artillery began to bombard Antwerp, these forces were recalled. The siege of Antwerp had begun. By October, Antwerp had fallen, and Albert and his army withdrew. Assisted by French and British forces, the Belgians fought a series of battles before settling in behind the Yazir River. To stall the Germans, the sluices of the Yazir were opened at high tide to flood the area. This flooding caused German forces to temporarily retire. The fighting continued days later, but the Yazir front had been established. Both sides would continue fighting along this line for the rest of the war. At this point, Germany occupied 95% of Belgian territory. The Belgians occupied a 25-mile-long, 10-mile-wide strip of land on the sea. Within this tiny strip of land, the remnants of the Belgian army continued to survive, assisted by the British Royal Navy. Albert's growing reputation as a fearless leader attracted many young Belgian men to his cause. Most arrived via England after escaping German-occupied Belgium. For four long years, this tiny, unoccupied sliver of Belgium held out. Try as they might, German forces could not push the Belgians into the sea. Albert and his wife refused to leave and set up a government in exile, choosing instead to live in a small house in a seaside village in the territory that they still controlled. The Belgian government remained in this territory as well. 
Through it all, Albert was an inspiration to his army, and daily could be found at the front. A Paris newspaper reported, His Majesty's rank is quite forgotten, as he holds a torch while the engineers repair a break of a gun carriage, or lathers his face to shave himself without the aid of a mirror. It also didn't hurt his popularity that he allowed his own teenage son and heir to the throne to join the Belgian army and fight as a private in the war. By 1915, he was engaged in a struggle on two very different fronts, how to deal with his own government and how to deal with the Allies. His biggest challenge involved keeping his military intact. The French high command intimated that the sacrifice of 10,000 Belgian lives in a joint operation would be a very valuable bargaining chip for Belgium in the peace negotiations after the war. Albert, however, was unconvinced. He was not particularly satisfied with the plans for Allied offensives and did not see slaughters like the Somme as particularly effective. He curtly informed his government in 1916 that, I will oppose everything which spills the blood of our soldiers so uselessly on bloody and repetitive experiences, which seem doomed to failure. I do not hesitate to say that, after having done my duty, I find this current of ideas which lead to war of excess, at the risk of sacrificing thousands of men without profit, dangerous. This attitude frustrated Allied leaders, but he never faced serious repercussions. In the end, he had a trump card. The world felt bad for tiny, resolute Belgium, with its brave king and because of the atrocities suffered by its civilians under German occupation. The powerful Allied governments could only push Albert so far. The propaganda of fighting alongside Belgium was far too valuable to lose. Albert also had to fight an internal battle to maintain his role as chief of the Belgian armed forces. Although his government initially tried to convince him that his role as chief of the army was titular, and that the army should instead be led by the army chief of staff, Albert objected, choosing instead to remain the leader of his forces throughout the war, even refusing to allow his army to fight under a combined Allied command. His government nearly accused him of treason at one point, when it was suspected in 1916 that he would not automatically reject a German peace offer. The other Allied governments were anxious that a separate peace not be established, and Albert was roundly attacked by all. He defended himself, explaining that his responsibility as king was to the survival of Belgium, with millions of his subjects either in exile or as relative hostages under German occupation. The king was going to make the best decision for his country, not for the Allies. Squashed between powerful belligerents, he was in a unique position to see danger to Belgium on all sides. As the war progressed, he protested battles fought on Belgian soil, such as Passchendaele. He also made it clear that any Allied strategy of taking Brussels by force of arms would likely result in the destruction of the city and a huge cost in terms of civilian lives. In the end, his refusal to place his forces under the command of a foreigner meant that in the summer of 1918, he was given command of the Allied Army Group Flanders, one of the massive commands that was part of the final Allied offensive of the war. In this capacity, and with the strong Belgian army he had continued to build and save from operations he deemed futile, he mounted a campaign to liberate Belgium. This Franco-Belgian force was later joined by two American divisions. At the end of the war, he and his wife entered Brussels to cheering crowds and shouts of long live the king. With the war over, in 1919, Albert and his queen accepted an invitation from President Wilson to visit the United States. Upon arrival, he issued the following statement. 
The King of the Belgians desires to express to the people of the United States the great pleasure with which the Queen and himself are coming to its shores at the invitation of President Wilson. The King brings to this nation of friends the testimony of the profound sentiment and gratitude of his countrymen for the powerful aid, moral and material, which America gave them in the course of the war. From the White House to the Indian Pueblos of New Mexico, the King and Queen were a sensation in America. On their return to Belgium, they threw themselves into the hard work of rebuilding their nation. This would be their sole preoccupation for the next decade. Albert had been a loyal, if at times independent, member of the Allied cause, but he feared for the autonomy of his small state in the post-war period. He was concerned that the major victorious powers would turn countries like Belgium into vassal states. He was accused of preferring a softer, compromised peace rather than the Treaty of Versailles, but he repeatedly indicated that his concern was for Belgium's independence, from the Allies or from Germany. Albert also attempted to warn the peacemakers that the dissolution of the Habsburg monarchy and the dethronement of monarchs across the continent would set the stage for future instability. In the end, however, although she had been one of the main moral arguments for the Allied cause, Belgium was a minor player at the peace conference. Albert's advice generally went unheeded. Although Albert believed another war would soon be on the horizon, he did not live to see this war or lead his countrymen once more. On February 17, 1934, he was killed in a solo climbing accident. He was an experienced climber, and his death shocked the world, which for years had seen him as one of the few bright hopes for a new Europe. World War I saw the twilight of many monarchies across Europe. Many of the dynasties that survived knew that some seismic shift had occurred. After the war, the survivors sat uneasily upon their thrones, but not Albert. His popularity increased and increased. Reportedly, even those who had once wished to overthrow the Belgian monarchy before the war had cried by the end of the war, If we make Belgium a republic, we will have Albert for our first president. In 1919, there had even been a movement to offer Albert the German throne, with many believing that he alone could occupy the throne vacated by Kaiser Wilhelm II and bring Germany back into friendship with the Allies. He was also considered for the title of Protector of the Holy Places by Pope Benedict XV. His focus, however, had remained rebuilding Belgium. Perhaps the greatest testament to his contribution in World War I came from King George V. The king personally credited Albert's refusal to surrender to Germany as the most pivotal moment in the war. On the day of Albert's funeral in 1934, King George V remarked to the Secretary of the Cabinet, Suppose Albert had faltered and decided to bow to superior force. The Germans would have been in Paris in six weeks. If we had come in, we should have been too late. There would have been nowhere where we could have acted. That shows the kind of man Albert was. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.